0: Well, tonight, would you open your Bible with me, please, to the book of Second Peter as we look at the third chapter. I remember a time in Chicago when I was a student there that some of us went to, to the Loop area, which is the downtown Chicago uh, area. And there we stood on the sidewalk just looking up. And it was very interesting to watch the reaction of people around us who would pass by. Some would look up and then go on their way, and there were others who just joined us there looking up. They had no idea in the world what we were looking up at, and we didn't either. It was just an experiment to see how many people we could get to look up. They didn't know what they were to expect. I want to ask you a question tonight. What are you expecting? Our text this evening deals with that theme. In this chapter, three times we are told uh, that we're to be looking for something to come in the future and that it should make a difference in our lives. We, as God's people, are a people of the future. We have a past, thank God it's forgiven. We live in the present, that's the trial of today. And the difficulties and the blessings that we experience, but we're really a people of the future. We live with our eyes fixed on the future. And I remind you again of that verse in Romans chapter 8 that says, We are saved for the hope. I think the Moffat translation says something like, We are saved with this hope in view. And in the context there, it's the hope of the restoration of all things. And the adoption of our own bodies, that is the changing, the transformation of our bodies to be like the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the hope that we have. That's what we're looking for. And it's good to be reminded of that fact. In fact, that is what Peter tells us in this chapter. He says, I want to remind you. He says, you know this already, but I want to bring it to your attention again. Notice how he puts it. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember. You get the idea that Peter thinks we forget easily. Peter must have known us even though we were living 2,000 years later. Uh, We haven't changed a whole lot, have we, in these 2,000 years. We do easily forget. We get our eyes Off of the things that are important and onto the things that are urgent, and we get carried off in many directions. Peter says, Look, I want to stir up your minds. I want to fan your minds to flame again regarding these things that you've already been told, but now you need to be reminded of them. He says, The word spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Just in passing, let me mention this, the only time you find that phrase in the New Testament, your apostles, there are some who say that this was a slip of the pen by some guy who wrote this book in Peter's name a long time later than the first century. Uh, In fact, we do not accept that criticism of this book at all. We believe that it was, in fact, written by the apostle Peter. Peter is simply acknowledging here, humbly but frankly, his apostolic authority, along with the others appointed to that office by our Lord. He says, Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, All continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time, or the world of old, is a better way of saying it, was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Do not let this one fact escape your notice. It goes back to the fact that we do let things escape our notice. He says, don't let this escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. He's not there giving us a ratio that in heaven one day occurs when there's a thousand years on the earth. He's simply saying that time is irrelevant, really, to an eternal God. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. Like a thief. What are we to expect? We are reminded to expect the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. That is an important eschatological or prophetic term in the scriptures. It is one that refers to the conclusion of the present world order as we know it. It is a time that in Scripture is described in terms of judgment, as he does in verse 7, in terms of destruction of ungodly people, but also in terms of blessing and restoration. It is described in terms of the tribulation as well as the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord embraces both of those thoughts. And so the day of the Lord is not a 24-hour period, but rather it is a lengthy period of time that's described as a day which the Lord overtly controls and in which He will intervene in the history of the world. The present period is sometimes termed the day of man I think it's Paul that uses that phrase in his writings. It is a day when man seems to, to rule, when, when everything is focused upon humanity, and God is largely neglected. But this will be God's day. This will be the day of the Lord, when God will become the focus of all, and when he will directly intervene in the flow of human history. I believe that this day of the Lord is to be distinguished technically from another phrase that we find only in the New Testament, and that is the phrase "the day of Christ" or "the day of Jesus Christ." That phrase is found in Philippians one six, one ten, and two sixteen, in one Corinthians one verses seven and eight, and in chapter five verse five, as well as in two Corinthians one verse fourteen. The day of Christ, in those contexts, is describing the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ for the church. It's that event that we sometimes call the rapture of the church. It is a a day, it is an event for which there are no signs to point. It is a day that can happen at any moment. It is always described as being imminent, which means it could happen at any time. That the Antichrist doesn't have to come first. There doesn't have to be the restoration of the Jews to Israel or any of those things before that day of Christ can occur. And we're to live with that kind of expectancy. And in terms of our own participation, that is exactly what we're looking for, the coming of our Lord for his church. But that day of Christ will set in motion events that will fall out into the day of the Lord. I'm not going to say that at 10 o'clock on one Friday the rapture will occur and at 10.01 the day of the Lord starts. But at the moment the rapture does occur, events will begin to quickly unfold that will lead to this extended period of time called the day of the Lord. We learned some things about the Day of the Lord in our text this evening. It is that the Day of the Lord is predicted by the prophets and the apostles of our Lord Jesus. What Peter is telling us here is that this is not some minor theme. This is not a point he's dragging out of obscurity into the light. But here is a truth. Here is a theme of Scripture that is spoken of in the warp and woof of the Bible. It says the prophets talked about this. Now just uh, in case you're wondering which prophets, I'm going to read you a list. You're going to have to write quickly to get them all because uh, I can't take time to dictate it to you. But Isaiah talks about the day of the Lord. Isaiah 2, Isaiah 10, Isaiah 13, Isaiah 26, Isaiah 34, Isaiah 63, Isaiah 66. Now in some places it's called, uh, in that day... Or simply that day, but it's clear that this future period is in view that is described as the day of the Lord. Jeremiah talks about it in chapter 25, verse 29, chapter 46, and verse 10. Ezekiel refers to it in chapter 30 and verse 3 of his book. Uh, The book of Joel is largely written around the whole theme of the day of the Lord. Amos talked about it, chapter 5, verse 18. Obadiah in verse 15, Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 7, Zechariah chapter 12 verses 1 through 9, six times in that paragraph he refers to that day, that day, that day, and you look at it, it's the day of the Lord. Chapter 14 verse 1 again, Zechariah refers to it. Malachi chapter 4 verse 1, the prophets pointed to the day of the Lord. A time of terrifying judgments, as well as a time of joyful blessings. And so did the apostles. Jesus himself spoke of the day. He describes it in Matthew chapter 24 in some detail. We'll turn to that text a little bit later. And then the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ built on what Jesus said. They were writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but they weren't off over here in some theme that they'd never heard of before. They simply were writing an extension of what Jesus began to teach them about this end of the age and the new age. Not the way we hear it today. A new millennium. A thousand-year period in the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter spoke about it in Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, quoting Joel, he writes about it here in this book. Paul wrote about it in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, and 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2. Jude speaks of it in verse 6 of his book, and John speaks about it in Revelation 2, 27, chapter 6, verse 17, and many other places in the book of the Revelation. And so when he says, we want you to remember what was spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, And the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. He's talking about a theme that we need to keep in mind. It's an important theme. It's the day of the Lord. It is essential for this day to come upon the earth for two reasons. In the first place, to uh, bring God's righteous wrath upon his enemies we have studied that somewhat in chapter 2 of this book. We read about it tonight in verse 7 of this very chapter. There will come a time upon the earth when God will pour out His judgment upon His enemies. It's essential for that day to come. But it will also come so that God might fulfill His promises to Israel. And so that He might restore the throne to David and to David's seed, descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been doing some reading, my personal reading, in the book of Jeremiah. uh, And uh, it's been reaffirming in my mind that God has given certain promises to the Jewish nation which have not been fulfilled. And people can rationalize about that, and they can say, well, this is figurative. It, it, it somehow spiritually applies to the church. They can do all they want to with it, but it still means what it says, that God has a future for the Jewish people. And so the day of the Lord must come upon the earth so that God can keep His word. And God is going to restore the throne To David. Are there signs of the day of the Lord? Well, yes, there are. In fact, that was the chief questions the disciples asked Jesus on the uh, sermon, on the mount, rather, and he responded with his sermon on the mount, the signs of this day that we're talking about. So the day of the Lord was spoken of by the prophets and by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, as well as Jesus himself. Now the second thing we see in our text here in 2 Peter 3 is that the day of the Lord is preceded by scoffers. Know this first of all. Uh, Peter is saying here basically, here is something that deserves priority in your thinking. In the last days, mockers will come. Let's think for a moment about this term, the last days, because that signifies to us the time of their mocking. In one sense, the last days is a term that describes this whole age since our Lord came until this day. It is spoken of, uh, this period is spoken of that way in Hebrews 1, for example, where it says, In these last days God has spoken to us by his Son. That's in contrast to the former days before Christ. This is a, a way of, that Peter himself uses the term. Back in 1 Peter 1 and verse 20. Regarding Christ, he says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your sake. Peter's talking about the last times as being this this whole 2,000 year now, period, following Christ's coming. We live in the last times, but so did Martin Luther. The Crusades were in the last times. Uh, Constantine was in the last times. The apostles were in the last times. Our Lord inaugurated the last times, the last days upon the earth. 2,000 years of last days, yes. On our clock, that's the way it's worked out. But I believe there's another sense in which this term is used. uh, By Paul, for example, in 1 Timothy 4 and in... 2 Timothy 3, when he writes about the concluding days of this age. So that it's, in a general sense, it's this whole age, but there's another more in- in- intensive sense in which the last days refer to the compressed period of time, right at the conclusion of this age in which we now live, sometimes called the age of grace. Peter says, in these last times there will be mockers. Were there mockers in Peter's day? Absolutely. Are there mockers today? Of course there are, and I think that they will increase as the days grow short. You say, what is a mocker? What is a scoffer? Well, the verb behind this, this noun means to play with something. So you have the idea of someone making a joke or toying or playing with the idea that they're mocking. And he tells us what they say in verse 4 as they make fun with this whole idea of the coming of Christ. Now, What is the reason for their mocking, their scoffing? Well, Peter says that they're doing this following after their own lusts. Pretty potent phrase, really. He said it's their fleshly cravings that provoke them and motivate them to follow this train of thought. Are they mocking because they have come to some kind of an intelligent decision that what they're mocking is wrong? No, Peter says. The reason they're mocking is because of their moral choice to follow after their own fleshly lusts. And because of that moral decision, not an intellectual decision, their moral decision, therefore they make mockery of what God says is going to happen in the day of the Lord. He says they, this whole idea escapes their notice. I don't care for that rendering too much because it, it kind of <clears throat> gives the idea that somehow, oops, it just slipped by them. And that's not the point at all. The point is that they willfully choose to remain ignorant of certain things. They do not wish to think of judgment, and therefore they deny it. They want to live out their own fleshly lusts without any thought of accountability. What is the, the content, the argument of their scoffing? Well, they say, look, things have always been just like they are now. There's a certain continuity in things. Ever since the fathers. Fellow, who are they? Well, those are the patriarchs. That's a term that describes real old people. Even older than some of us here. The fathers. You look back as far as you can see in history. You get out your binoculars. You see those people. That's the fathers. Now he says, ever since those people died, they fell asleep, all continues just as it has been from the beginning of creation. They say there's this unbroken cycle of human history, this continuity. Philosophers refer to it as uniformitarianism. Uh, you usually use that word with the adjective supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Uniformitarianism, and it's really a basic assumption of our science today. Our scientific laws uh, are, are built upon the idea that things just are always the same, that there's a certain stability about nature. Now they make three mistakes, really, these people who take that approach. First of all, they assume they know everything that's ever happened. They think they know all of history, which no one knows. Secondly, their argument is, well, if it hasn't happened before, it's not going to happen in the future." Oh, I've never had cancer before, but that doesn't mean it won't happen in the future. And he says they're willfully they willfully deny certain historical events that they can know about. Those are the mistakes that these scoffers make in their arguments. They say, where's the promise of his coming? And they maintain this. He says, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that certain things have happened in the history of the world. They say, he's not coming. Where's the promise that God is going to judge that Jesus Christ is coming again. Come on. It's never happened before. Things have always continued just like they are now. Peter says, uh, first of all, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago. Now again, I want, you to point, I want you to note that it's not just that this somehow slips by them, but this is something they choose to deny. They willfully turn away from this idea that God created the heavens and the earth. And he created it by his word. In fact, that is emphasized in the way Peter writes this. He says, by his word, by the word of God. The heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water which seems to be a reference to the dry land appearing in uh, Genesis chapter 1 then in verse 6 he says through which the ancient world the world of old was destroyed we have to back up and ask what does he mean by through which it's plural number one So we have to go back and say, well, what could that refer to? And I think the best answer is, he's saying, through his word and through water, the world of old was destroyed, being flooded with water. The clear reference here is to the Noahic flood. The second thing that the scoffers refuse to admit to is that things have not always been like they are now that God has previously intervened in human history and brought supernatural judgment to the human race. Of course, these people don't want to admit to that because they don't want a God who's going to intervene and bring judgment to them. He is talking here about a universal flood that is described in Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. By the way, I mentioned this morning... Uh, something I'd heard on the news in the last 10 days that referred, uh, or tied in with all of this. <clears throat> and it wasn't a very clear report, but uh, Channel 5, within the last 10 days, had a story regarding some archaeologists whom they did not identify. I wish they had done that. But these archaeologists were saying that they have concluded that they have now found the Ark on Mount Ararat. And they were holding models of what they felt the ark looked like and held it up to the pictures of the formations on Mount Ararat and they were pointing out what they felt were the water reserve system on the ark now turned on its side and another piece of the ark that was uh, torn away and laying in a different angle to the rest of the body And whether these were uh, Christian archaeologists or they were otherwise archaeologists, I don't know. Uh, They weren't identified. But Channel 5 reported this, and I do remember this is Ratings Month, I'm aware of that. But they reported this as fact, which I thought was most interesting. There was no sense of scoffing in the report. Uh, but they concluded the story by saying that these archaeologists expect next spring to go to this spot on Mount Ararat, which they can now gain access to because of the whole new political system over there in that part of the world. And uh, they expect to come back with definite proof, even pieces, of the Ark, most of which they say is now buried under 60 feet of ice. Well, I thought that's very interesting. I mentioned that to a friend of mine and. And the response was, well, what do you think that that will do for Christians? And my response was, well, probably not a whole lot because we already believe what the Bible says. Uh, It may help some. It may encourage some. But what will it do to the world? I think that's the more interesting question. Let's assume for the moment that the report is correct. And let's assume that they do bring back some of the ark. What's happening here? There's an interesting text in Matthew, chapter 24, verses 37 through 39. It might be worth our while just to look at it for a moment. This is the Sermon on the Mount I referred to earlier. And Jesus has now given some of the signs pointing to the day of the Lord, when he will return to the earth with judgment. Not for the church now, but later with judgment. And to establish his kingdom. And he says in verse 36 of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus is obviously saying that there are characteristics of those days before the flood that will characterize the end times. But the point I'm I'm drawing upon now is this. Wouldn't it be interesting if in these days, just prior to our Lord's coming again and his intervention in human history, suddenly after thousands of years the ark resurfaces and there it exists on Mount Ararat as a testimony, a physical testimony to the world that God has intervened before in human history, that there was a flood, that there was a judgment, how in the world are people going to respond to that? Quite honestly, I don't think it will bring a worldwide revival. I think what it will do is simply somehow turn up the heat uh, on believers and result in greater mocking and scoffing. That's what I think the end result would be if that were to happen. Now, I'm not going to predict they're going to find the flood next spring. Don't go out of here and say that. Or find the ark, rather. I'm not saying that tonight. But I'm saying if they do, it's so interesting what Jesus said about it being like the days of Noah, when there was an ark being built testifying to judgment coming. If in these days God allows the ark to resurface again to testify that judgment is coming, God has interrupted human history before, and He's going to do it again. Peter says. Uh, <clears throat> present heavens and earth system as it is now by his word are being reserved for fire not water but for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men now he's going to come back to that theme in verse 10 and we'll pick that up lord willing next week and talk some more about that fire and what all of this may mean. But the point is, Peter's saying, look, God is going to intervene again. God is going to bring judgment. He did it once before in the flood. He is going to do it again, only this time it's not going to be water as his instrument of judgment, it's going to be fire. There may be some who would respond by saying, well, uh, if this is going to happen, then why has it been so long? And so he begins now to tell us a third fact about the day of the Lord, and that is that the day of the Lord is postponed by him. He says, stop allowing it to escape your notice. And again, I point out that they were letting it get by. <clears throat> he says, don't let this, this fact escape. That God's clock is different than ours. Delay does not mean forgetfulness on God's part. We must not think that God has forgotten what He has said He is going to do. We must not become impatient with God. God is on His schedule, not ours. And God isn't in a hurry like we are. We think it's got to happen now. And if not now, at least this year. And if not this year, at least in my lifetime. But God is not constrained by any of that. God says, I have my clock. And the suggestion is here that God is postponing. Has God ever done that before? Yes. God is patient with sinners. He was in the days of Noah. We read that Noah was a preacher of righteousness in those days before the flood. That is, he proclaimed... The righteousness of God and God's judgment upon sin. And God waited 120 years beyond the time that he announced judgment for sinners to repent. And during that time the ark was being constructed and built and prepared. 120 years God waited. God is patient with sinners. God is patient with sinners today. And the implication seems to be here that the day of the Lord has been postponed, as we would see it from our perspective. Why? Because God desires for all to be saved. The Lord's not slow, as some people think, but he's patient toward you, he says, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. When it says that God does not wish any to perish, it doesn't mean that God has decreed none will perish. That that is God's decretive will, that none will perish, because there will be many who will perish. But the NASV puts it, God is not wishing for any to perish. That is the, the feeling of God's heart. That is the wish of God's heart. You say, well, if that's what God wishes, why doesn't God decree that? You'll have to ask him. But the fact is, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. But he has decreed that the wicked will be judged and will die, be punished in everlasting fire. But in light of what we've seen here tonight about the day of the Lord, what should we count our responsibilities to be? In the first place, I would put it this way. We need to think right. We need to be careful that we don't buy into the wrong presuppositions of the world in which we live. It's just all around us. The denial of God, the denial of God's intervention, the denial of of the flood, the denial of creation. So much the world denies. And why? Because there's an intellectual decision that this is wrong. No, it's a moral choice. They want to follow after their lusts and enjoy sin without any threat of judgment. Because we expect the day of the Lord to come upon the earth we need to think right we need to make the knowledge of God the foundation upon which everything else is built in our lives this is so important for those who are uh, in school who are learning under teachers who have bought into the presuppositions that are prevalent in our age our young people need to be constantly un- reminded That the knowledge of God is the foundation for all other knowledge. Uh, That's one reason we're so committed here to Christian education, to children, to students, and to adults as well. The knowledge of God is the foundation of all other knowledge. We need to think right. Secondly, we need to live right. He goes on to say in verse 11, "Uh, Since these things are going to be destroyed, what sort of people ought you to be? In holy conduct and godliness. In verse 14 he says, Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. There are ethical considerations we need to remember in our business life. In our relationships to other people. In our marriages and homes. We are to be people who are characterized by what he says is holy conduct. Take time to be holy. Speak oft with thy Lord. We sang earlier. Holiness in conduct. Living differently by different standards than the world around us. And godliness. What's that? God-centeredness. Live right and finally speak right. Noah did. Back in chapter 2 and verse 5, look what it says about him. God preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. You and I are called to live in an exciting time. And in this day, the last days, in the days when we can see signs pointing toward the day of the Lord, we are to be a people who are speaking right and like Noah of old, we are to declare the righteousness of God. And we're to call people to be right with God by repenting of sin and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are you looking for? Well, it's not time to be standing around looking up in the air, looking at nothing. It's time for us to be looking for the coming of our Lord. A coming that will involve ultimately judgment upon the ungodly and their destruction then the establishment of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In light of that, we need to think right, we need to live right, we need to speak right, as would please Him. Let's bow together. Father, as we've been able to lay before ourselves tonight by way of reminder these truths about what to expect Our desire is that the Holy Spirit will now cause us to depart with this anticipation and joy in our hearts. And may it make a difference, Lord. May it not simply excite our curiosity, but may it excite the way that we think, the way that we live, and the way that we speak to those around us. And may we live by faith, as did Noah. May we find your approval as Noah did in those days before the flood. May we be preachers of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. In closing, I'd like for us to sing a verse of 463. This was requested last week by one of the young men in our church and uh, tonight it just kind of fits in with this theme of looking to the future that we've talked about and so I'd like to sing it not only for him and Micah knows who he is but we'll sing it for ourselves because it expresses our own hope I trust it's your hope and your confidence when the roll is called up yonder I'll be there 463 let's stand as we sing When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and times shall be no more. Right.